Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, you tell us that the unfolding of your word gives us light and imparts understanding to the simple. So I pray that you would help me to unfold your word rightly, that you would shed light in our darkness and understanding in our simplicity. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So goes the hymn that we love to sing. It all sounds so wonderfully comforting and cosy. But exactly how does grace save a wretch like Jacob? Is salvation always such a sweet and gentle experience, an alluring whisper in your ear? Or is it more like a punch in the face? More like a wrestling match? where God's amazing grace takes hold of you despite your struggle and causes you to cling to him alone. What's been your experience of God's grace? How did he draw you in? Were you wrestling? Were you fighting? Were you running away? You see, for Jacob, he's not sweetly drawn in. He's overpowered by the glorious grace of God. In the very first pages of the Bible, God's Word, in the very first book of the Bible, we see the grace of God in action. We see the grace of God in action, saving, rebirthing, rebuilding, blessing a wayward prodigal by grace. So come with me to Jacob, round two. Genesis chapter 31 to 33. Last week we met Jacob and we began to see how God uses ruined raw materials for his purposes to build stuff with. We saw how Jacob deals with difficult situations and we saw that after 20 years of struggle and gestation he was born wrestling. And then Jacob the great deceiver gets the birthright, deceives for the blessing and he becomes a man on the run after all the calamities. He's brought on his own. When you plunge into our text, chapter 31, another 20 years has gone by. And in verse 21 of chapter 31, well, Jacob's doing the same thing again. He is once again running. He ran into the land of promise. He's now running out of the land of promise. He's running away from Palestine. And now we find him running back to Palestine. Chapter 31 finds God meeting Jacob and telling him to return home, to go back to the promised land. So chapter 31 verse 21 reads, So he fled with all that he had, and crossing the river, he headed for the hill country of Gilead. You see, in the last 20 years, if we race through that part of Jacob's life, he has continued to deceive and be a trickster and be a cheat. He's deceived his uncle Laban and who comes to him mildly unhappy, no doubt, catches up with him and says to him twice, you've deceived me. Why did you run off and deceive me? He's been deceptive. He's taken all of his father-in-law's possessions. He's taken uh, Rebecca and Leah to be his wife. He's gained 11 sons. Again, we're seeing in this narrative that Jacob is capable of two things, wrestling and running whichever suits his needs, but he's still a deceiver. Well, 
As he approaches the promised land to which he's now running, he's got a problem in front of him. The reason he left the land 20 years ago is because his brother Esau wanted to kill him. So Esau stands between Jacob and the promised land. And we get a scary report in chapter 32, verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. And so there is great reason for Jacob to be afraid. And so verse 7 tells us, In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So Jacob enacts a plan because of his fear and in the face of his brother Esau. You may say a very sensible fear and a very sensible plan. Plan A, we find, is in verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the land of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Jacob prayed, never a bad place to start and we see he comments when he ran out of the land of promise he was alone and had nothing in the meantime he's become healthy and wealthy if not wise he's got a great company with him a small nation you might say god is fulfilling his promises to him he's got lots of lives with him he's got lots of children he's got lots of animals and so he's concerned for them so plan a is he prays But this is Jacob, so just in case plan A doesn't work, he's also got a plan B from verse 13. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself. And said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I'll pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Perhaps he'll forgive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Basically what Jacob does here is he takes all his wealth and divides it up into large clumps and then he goes and finds a high place on a hill, sits there alone to watch all that's going on. There's an army of 400 in the distance headed up by his brother Esau and he's sending his first gift of cattle and bits and pieces and then he watches to see what Esau will do with them. If Esau accepts them, great, great, 
That's a good sign. But if Esau slaughters them, then I can always run, says Jacob. Pretty much defined his character up until this point, his ability to run. If that first group is safe and the second lot slaughtered, I can run. I can run. But then that night, verse 22, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Jacob at the Jabbok. Small pun, pun, it's not very funny, but it forces us to remember his name, for his name is crucial to the story. Verse 23. After he had sent them across the stream, the stream part of the Jordan River, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him until daybreak. He's got a plan B, which is he will run if that's what's called for. He's now alone, and a man wrestled him until daybreak. That is a long wrestling match. But we know that Jacob is a good wrestler, don't we? He's been wrestling before he was born. He's got form. He's got skill. Second half of verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. It's an incredible event. We know that the man wrestling Jacob is God. God who is man, God who curiously enters the limitations of human flesh and deals with those weaknesses implied by that and yet does not lose the match. We're dealing with this sort of God. Verse 25, Jacob's hip in the wrestle is dislocated by God. That's a serious sporting injury. It doesn't mean that Jacob can no longer wrestle, but it does mean something significant for our story. The man says, let me go. Night has ended, it's daybreak. That's the bell, ding ding, that ends the match. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 7, the man asks, "Your na- What is your name? The man asked. There was another context just recently where Jacob was grasping after the blessing and somebody said to him, what is your name? And he answered, I'm Esau, your firstborn son. What is your name? Now he says, Jacob, the grasper, the supplanter, the cheat, the sinner. I believe Jacob makes a confession here. I'm the one who bears this name. Upon making that confession, verse 28, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, the sinner, the grasper, the supplanter, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Let me just take a step back for a moment and say, here we've got 20 years, we've got a wrestling match, and we've got a man, a name being given to him, which is significantly tied to the wrestling experience. Virtually all of this is an echo of the story we saw at his birth, yeah? 
My point is this. This is Moses' way of telling us that Jacob is being born again. It's a new birth. It's a narrative. It's a story crafted to tell us that this is Jacob's second birth. He's becoming a new man, being given a new name in his and through his encounter with the living God himself. Jacob, in verse 29, responds to all this by simply asking, Please tell me your name. But the second half of verse 29, why do you ask my name? Why do you ask my name? It's as if God says, don't you know, Jacob, who blesses you? Don't you know who has carried you through every step of the last 20 years, made you wealthy, who's given you success, who's given you children, who's growing you into a nation? Don't you know, Jacob, who longs to bless you? And Jacob, in this experience, discovers who he has been wrestling with all along. He's been wrestling with a God who has longed to bless Jacob from the beginning. See, Jacob hadn't need any, any need of grasping or fighting. He only needed to trust in this God. His enemies, Esau, his brother, his father Isaac, Laban, his father-in-law... All of his enemies were the ruin of his grasping and wrestling. And all he needed to do was trust the promises of God, cling to God, and to receive his blessing. You see, here we have in Jacob a character being torn down, broken, being left with nothing. But in this wrestle, he is blessed. Verse 30. He called the place, Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Jacob leaves the land running in fear and naming the place where he is sitting. He now enters the land running and names the place where he is sitting. But what is the one thing he cannot do? We can't enact plan B. Plan B has been stripped away from him. He cannot run away. Verse 31. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and was limping because of his hip. What a beautiful phrase. The sun rose. A new day is dawning, full of hope, full of aspiration, but he's limping because of his hip. See, God's removed his ability to run. The thing that defined his character in this story up until this point in so many ways. Verse 32. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Again, pausing and causing us to pause and to ask, what is going on here? And the reality is that now Jacob is defined by his inability to run because God has taken that from him. The new morning, with all its hope, with all of its aspiration, the new morning is dawning. But verse 1 of chapter 33, an ominous ominous note, if there ever was one, is on the horizon. Verse 1, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached 
his brother. Jacob's not at the end of the queue at this stage, but at the head of it, because he will not run. That plan has been removed by God. He will not run. And so he bows down as he approaches his brother. Verse 4, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Think back. What was the blessing that Isaac gave Jacob? The blessing was that your brother will serve you. Your brother will bow down to you. But now Jacob is bowing before Esau. Jacob is calling Esau his lord, his master. And Jacob's speaking of himself as the servant. Isaac's blessing doesn't count for anything in this story. Verse 8. Esau asked, What do you mean by all the droves I met? To find favour in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favour in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favourably. Please accept the present that God has was brought to you that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way, I'll accompany you. Jacob's figured out, based on the fact that he's just had an interaction, a wrestle with a living God and lived, that all that he's stolen is worth nothing to him. Worse than nothing, it's the curse that he thought it would be. So he gives back what he's stolen, the stolen blessing, and says, this belongs to you. Why? Because I have seen God himself and I have been blessed by him. I know what it means to meet the living God and live. And that is the blessing that God has intended for his people. Not a stolen blessing, but the blessing given by God to him the night before. And in that, verse 11, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. What a wonderful phrase in verse 11. God in his grace to me, has given me all I need. A broken man who will never run again, who's returning the stolen blessing, knows that he has all he needs because he has met the true and living God. I wonder if we can say, I have all I need, as the dark days approach. And they tend to come along at some point, don't they, in some way in life. Can we say, I... No matter what comes my way, I have all I need because I have met God. The very last verse of chapter 33 is really telling. Jacob indeed enters the promised land again. He arrives safely, verse 18, at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. He's back in the promised land. Just as God promised, he has a small nation with him. The promises of God we met in Genesis chapter 12 through Abraham are now being realized through this 
ruined raw material of Jacob and his kind of similarly ruined raw material family in Israel. Verse 33 is telling. Have a look at verse 33, verse 20. Upon returning to the land, there he set up an altar and called it El Eloche Israel. God, the God of Israel. He worships the true and living God for the first time in his life. When he prayed to God in chapter 31, he prayed to the God of Abraham and to the God of Isaac. It was always someone else's God. But now he can say, I have all I need. Now he says, this God, Yahweh, is My God, the same God that made great promises to Abraham and kept them. The same God that made huge promises to Isaac and kept him. This is my God. For the first time, he acknowledges Yahweh to be the God of Israel. My God, he worships the true and living God. From sinner to saved. By the grace of God. From saved to being blessed by the grace of God. There are a number of curious things in this story that I have well and truly overlooked. For example, Jacob, we see one man alone on a hill, broken, pointing us to Jesus. Another cursory kind of look at one thing is that We see that only through suffering and pain does God bring blessing and then ultimately glory. But let me just consider one thing in some detail. Chapter 33, verse 4. Chapter 33, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Does that ring any bells? New Testament bells for you. It's virtually the same wording that we find in the words of Jesus Christ in the parable of the prodigal son. We see it in chapter 15, verse 20 of Luke's gospel. A father who has a son, a prodigal son who runs away and squandered everything and lived stupidly, ruined himself, ending up eating raw materials in the mud, returns He has a planned, pre-prepared speech, but he can't get the notes out of his pocket quick enough until his father sees him, runs and meets him, puts his arms around his neck and kisses him. The narrative we have in Genesis 31 to 33 is like the prequel to the main feature in Luke's gospel, the prodigal son. It's the picture of the father taking hold of that son and being restored in a relationship with him. A son who has been broken down, who has nothing to offer, but has been accepted back and then blessed. And here Esau receives his brother in that way. A picture of God embracing a wretch and offering scandalous forgiveness and lavishing blessing upon him. Jacob's the prodigal son. I have no doubt that when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, as recorded in Luke 15, he was thinking of this particular incident. Jacob's the prodigal son. But in his weakness, God is at work. 
and he's making him into a person that he wants him to be. God's not just tearing down his character, he's building a character that will be useful to him and his purposes. Israel becomes a grand, large nation, but still weak among the other nations of the world. But in its weakness is a vessel of God and his choosing and becomes useful in the purposes of God as Israel clings to the promises of God. But because they cling imperfectly, then comes the true Israelite, Jesus, who in his weakness, not despite his weakness, but in his weakness, is useful to God's ultimate plan of salvation to bring blessing. As God's own son, Jesus Christ, clings to the God of grace on the cross, broken, beaten, alone, with nothing. In that, Jesus becomes a blessing to all the nations of the world. Genesis 12, through Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through the true Israelite Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The Apostle Paul says, When I am weak, clinging to God, then... Then only am I strong, as he then takes the gospel of God's grace to the ends of the earth. And the story is unfinished. What about us? What about you? Can we say the same thing, that we've been torn down by God, not for our destruction, but so that he takes us and says, cling to me, cling to my promises, so that his work can be completed in our lives, so that he can accomplish his good purposes in our lives, that through us, blessing would go to those people in our workplace, in our home, in our friendship groups, in our sporting clubs, wherever we might go. You see, God is at work in our lives by his grace, not tearing down our character, but building up our character, teaching us that our identity and sufficiency lies in God alone. That we don't get blessing by grasping and stealing, we get it as a gift. Growing in us the character of Jesus Christ, preparing us, shaping us, growing us, fitting us out for something better. See, I believe that's what God is doing, has been doing, did in the life of Jacob. I believe that's what God is doing right now in our lives. God in his grace, painful as it might be, is teaching us that independent, self-sufficient people can't enter the kingdom of God. The promised inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. The only way... The only way into that blessed future is to cling to Christ, rely on Christ and receive all the blessings of being in God's family through Christ. Jesus warned us. He warns us in Luke 18 verse 17, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child as a precious gift from the Father. Again, John 15, 1 and 2 in verse 5, Jesus says, Apart from me you can do nothing, let alone enter God's kingdom. So stop fighting. Cling to God. 
rely on his grace, both in life and perhaps even more aptly in death. And by his grace, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will take you home to the promised land. It may be a a painful journey. Yeah, at times it is. But although painful, although not always sweet sounding, God's gracious promises always lead to glory. Cling to him. By God's grace, we have been rebirthed, rebuilt, blessed for a great future. So that we can sing with confidence the final words of the great hymn we love to sing, Amazing Grace. When we've been there, 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace. Cling to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Jacob and the way we see you eliminating his options, driving him home, shaping him to be the man he needed to be to accomplish your purposes in his life. And we see the same thing, your hand at work in the story of the nation of Israel, in the story of the true Israelite, your son Jesus Christ, and in our own story. In our weakness, thank you that you take hold of us and use us to accomplish your purposes. So together we pray that we will be wise enough to see you at work in our lives. We pray that we wouldn't resist that painful touch, but rather we would say, Lord, bless me. Lord, bless me. We know that all good things come from you. Please bless us. We pray this in Jesus' name, knowing that he alone and you alone are the source of blessing eternal. In Jesus' name. Amen.